So good morning, and I'm happy to be here with you this morning, practicing here. It was nice to do this last two sits with you. The theme of this retreat is practicing in difficult times. So I suppose I'll try to address something that's on topic. And uh, if I repeat things that have been said earlier, I wasn't here for the earlier talk, so I certainly apologize and be patient with me if I say. But practice in difficult times, it seems like a great, great theme. And uh, one of the things that occurs to me as I see that theme is that uh, in my years of practice, studying Buddhism, that um, I've learned that um, to not to be surprised by difficult times. That uh, I don't know if I exactly expect to have difficult times, but I don't feel surprised. It's kind of like seems like it's built into the nature of life. Um, the way life is lived, that there are difficult times, there will be difficult times. The difficult times roll through, and they take different shapes and colors, uh, different forms at different times. But I think it's uh, helpful to not be excessively surprised and think that something is fundamentally, I don't know, wrong with the world, that there are difficult times. Um, however, Buddhist practice is designed to meet those difficult times and um, not to just kind of become a victim of them, uh, not just accept them as they are, so that's too bad and we'll just have to learn how to suffer better. <laughs> but rather um, to, to address, to really meet the difficult times and see them as a very profound um, arena for our practice, like Buddhism is designed, really designed to really find liberation in this life of ours. There's a story of a monastery where after the new monks and nuns had been there for a year, the abbot would gather the new monks together, nuns, and say, oh, I, uh, pack your bags. I'm going to take you on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. And the new, new monastics couldn't believe their good luck. Some of them, after a year or so in the monastery, were bored. Some were wondering what they were doing there. Some had set, settled into an easygoing, complacent complacency with the comfort of being in the monastery. And, uh, and now they got to go to the holy sites of Buddhism, the whole pilgrimage sites. The, um, and they knew about that uh, in India, the sites of the Buddha was born, where the Buddha was enlightened, where the Buddha died, or really the holy sites of a pilgrimage. They couldn't believe the good luck. So the day of departure, they were all packed up and the older monks and nuns met them at the gate and sent them off as they went with their packs and off into the world. And the abbot led them first to a hospital where they visited people who were quite sick. And some of the new young monks and nuns 
and never encountered people that sick as they saw in the hospital. And then they went and visited an old age home and they saw people in all kinds of stages of old age and disrepair. And then they went to a hospice where they saw people who were various stages of dying close to death, including one person who had recently died. And they sat vigil for a long time with the corpse. And then the abbot brought them back to the monastery and first brought them to the monastery infirmary where there was an old nun who was quite sick. But there was this calm and love shining from her. And then they visited the monastery hospice. And in fact, there was a very old monk who was dying. And there was a peace in the monk's eyes that the novices had never seen before. And they spent a long time just kind of being in the room with this old man who was dying, just to kind of soak in the peace that he had. And then the abbot led the new monastics back to the meditation hall and said to them, you have now encountered the holy sites of Buddhism. The practice that you do here is to come to terms with them and discover how in the midst of sickness, old age, and death, that you can find a profound peace, you can find liberation. So to practice in difficult times is to uh, have the holy sites of Buddhism visit you. You don't go to them. And um, sickness, old age, and death, you know, are kind of like the tag words or the little kind of code words in Buddhism for difficult times, for all, all the things that might befall us. And, um, and they can be challenging. Um, and one of the things, one of the first things I think that this mindfulness practice can help us understand or to see is what is our most common responses to difficult challenges. You know, if without, if there's no wisdom operating in, in us and something difficult happens, what is our first kind of gut response? And it's good to kind of know kind of the basic attitude or approach that we'll have. Um, and it could be as simple as, you know, sitting down to meditate here and the challenge is your knees hurt. Or it could be that you know, that you, they run out of your, fit, your lunch by the time you get down there. That's a challenge. Or it could be that your roommate snores, if you have a roommate here. Or it could be that you're sick. It could be that you've lost your job. It could be that someone you know is dying. There's a lot of things that could happen. So, and when these things happen, what's the kind of the the response, and some people will respond with um, anger. Some people will respond by some form of desire, wanting something and planning and fantasizing and trying to fix things. Some people will respond with despair. 
radically sometimes giving up. Some people respond with um, blame, blaming others, blaming oneself. Some people will just uh, um, get really lethargic and sleepy, just too much. Some people get really anxious, fearful, and run around in circles in their heads and their thoughts. Some people just get more and more confused when there's challenge. What do I do? So that's just a, a partial list. But what I'm trying to say here is that it's very useful to use the mindfulness practice to start becoming wise about what our general reaction is. How do we tend to react? How do we, what do we do when there are challenges? And uh, because if we don't see how we tend to react, then uh, it's going to be there kind of uh, influence, influencing us uh, unconsciously or subconsciously and shaping and coloring how we see the challenge, how we see the difficulty, how we see ourselves in it. And uh, if we just believe our reactive judgments or our reaction, uh, it's going to uh, create a very different approach to working through a difficulty than if we can step back and say, oh, look at this. I'm challenged here. This is difficult for me now. And, um, and the, my old patterns of getting angry or assigning blame are rearing up. And let's watch this. Let's be present and watch it rather than get on that bandwagon right away. So the, uh, the opportunity in a retreat like this is you will be challenged on the retreat. In some way or other, something will happen here. Uh, it could be quite small. It could be quite big. The line for the bathroom can be too long. It could be, you know. And, and to, to rather than get onto a bandwagon, get onto the thoughts and reactions you usually have, um, part of the value of being here is to step back and look at that and see, oh, look at that. This is how I react. This is the beliefs that get operated, that get triggered. This is the emotions that get triggered. This is the desires that get triggered when I feel challenged. And then beginning to have a different way of relating to these responses and reactivities. To step back and not be swept away by them, but to watch them. And if we could watch them and see them and know them really well, that gives us the opportunity to question or to explore are there wiser ways of responding? Are there ways of responding that don't come out of the anger, don't come out of the desire, don't come out of the fear, don't come out of the whatever it might be? And, um, and that's you know, a huge part of what Buddhist, Buddhism is kind of pointing to, is that it, there is possible to bring wisdom to bear on the choices we make, to wisdom to bear on how we respond to our life and to our challenges. One of the things, one of the wisdom uh, teachings of Buddhism is that uh, in relationship to our challenges, our difficulties, is that um, there's an important distinction between relief and release. And sometimes people look for relief. Uh, just to kind of, they want, it's just it's too much right now, I just need to be able to cope a little bit better, I need to kind of have a little bit, you know, some, some space so I can just kind of manage. I just want to kind of kind of have a vacation from all this difficulty, some relief from it. And uh, relief is fine. It's very important to have release, relief. But uh, a release is different. Um, release, in this vocabulary, release is to be released from the ways in which we cling or tighten up or contract 
or are caught or preoccupied by what is happening. To be released is to understand something much deeper about how we're relating to the difficulty and then uprooting some very, very deep, uh, perhaps deep, uh, attachment that is not needed in the situation so that it's not going to be there in the future to operate. Now, in order to see what needs to be released, it, uh, it really helps to be challenged. And this is part of the thing about difficulty. There's two sides to having difficult, difficult times. It's unfortunate to have difficulties. It's unfortunate to have sickness, old age, age and death. But on the other hand, they're kind of mirrors that help us to look, if it mirrors to look, what is it that needs to be released? What, what is the real spiritual work here that's different than just getting relief from it? So if you get, if you can get whatever you want, you won't really, most people then won't look deeply at desire. They won't question it. If you can avoid all the things that you don't want, you might not look deeply at the movement of aversion. But if you don't get what you want, then your desire stands out in highlight. If you get what you don't want, your aversion stands out in highlight, or your fear stands out in highlight. So you get to look at it. So they, you know, it, it, uh, one ideal about freedom is freedom to get whatever you want. Freedom to vote, freedom to own property, freedom to speech, freedom to bear arms, guns, uh, and freedom to shop. <laughs> you know, just give me freedom. And um, an unlimited credit card would do great. It's a certain kind of freedom, freedom to get. Buddhism focuses more on freedom from, freedom from the impulse to shop, freedom from the impulse to hate, freedom from the impulse towards fear. And so, maybe it's an unfortunate example, but the example of, you know, shopping, if a person has an addiction, to any kind of addiction, shopping, drugs, anything, alcohol, to have unfettered access to the thing that you have addicted to can sometimes uh, uh, make it difficult to turn around and really look at the nature of the addiction. But if it becomes difficult to attain it, uh, then sometimes you, people will look at it. I've known people who had addictions, and it was only until they had trouble getting the drugs of choice or whatever, that they say, what am I doing here? As long as it was easy. So there's something very significant here about <clears throat> difficulties where we can't live the life that we want to live. And it's, I, I'm not saying that it's not unfortunate, I'm not saying that it's, I wish it could be different for some of you, for all of us, but when there are difficulties, what, uh, one of the things that Buddhist practice encourages us to do is to use that as a mirror not to see necessarily how to fix the world or fix situation, but to use a mirror to understand ourselves in a deeper way. 
What am I attached to? What am I clinging to? And the greater the crisis, the stronger mirror it is to see something profound about ourselves. The greater the crisis, the harder it is, but the more we're called upon to look really, really deeply. If we're, pract- if we're practicing, that's, you know, that's the approach we're taking. There's other, other approaches you can take, but, or should take even. But, but, um, so the greater the difficulty. Um, so um, I've seen it here on retreat many times. Uh, we, we design retreats uh, to try to make them as safe as possible. Be relatively protected. You know, we're up here in this protected valley here. And a lot of effort goes into creating a safe, comfortable, secure environment to practice in. And, um, but from time to time on retreats, something happens that shouldn't have happened. Something we tried not to see happen. And, um, and then we try as teachers and staff to try to meet that and support that. I mean, try to deal with it the best we can. But something, some retreatant happens. Something happens to retreatants. And, um, and what I've seen over and over and over again is that, and so many times, is that after some days or after a week or after a period of time, the retreatant will come back and say, you know, that was one of the most important things that happened to me. Of course, it shouldn't have happened, but because it happened, I got to look at something about myself that I wouldn't have looked at in other, other situations. I was challenged in some deep way with my challenge about things I hold on to, about my self-image, what I believe my values are, what I think is most important. And, um, and uh, so I'll give you maybe a small example. Um, um, uh, one, one of the things that shouldn't happen on retreat is um, people should not come into the meditation hall with Velcro jackets, <laughs> and uh, and then proceed to in the middle of the sitting to tear open, <laughs> and um, and we kind of encourage you not to do that, but it has happened, and I've had people come to me and to complain, Gil, you have to do something about that retreatant. <laughs> You can't believe that, you know, the Velcro, all of a sudden, this is supposed to be a quiet, silent retreat, and everything's so pristine and nice, and then suddenly in the middle of sitting, (laughs) (laughs) and and I'll say, um, well, that's interesting, (laughs) and... And in uh, this circumstance, what, 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 would you, what would you think would, ha- would happen if you just, we didn't do anything, we didn't say anything to the person, but what happens if you just go back to your cushion and just bring more mindfulness to what's going on? And almost always, the person will come back a few days later and say, that was really important to go through that because I realized that um, I had so many things I was attached to I was attached to my precious practice. I was attached to my self-righteousness. I was attached to my uh, anger about this person. I was angry with you teachers because you weren't taking care of us better. I was attached to so many different things I was holding on to. And I had such a sharp 
divide between my practice and my well-being and the world out there. And what I learned as I start to see all these things, I learned that I didn't have to hold on to all these things. I didn't have to see the world in those lights. And I could be much more relaxed. And after a, fa- after a while, the Velcro still happened, but it just sound coming through. It didn't land anywhere. It didn't hit anything. I didn't react to it. And I saw how much my distress was born in me, not in the Velcro. And I wouldn't have seen this strong tendency and division and how I'm holding on to my precious practice and my, my holding on to myself as a victim and all these things unless I'd gone back and really sat with it and unless someone had come with Velcro. So next time I come and retreat, I expect you to have more Velcro because <laughs> it was so helpful. So a little bit silly example, but, but there's all kinds of examples. You know, I've known people, for example, who down in the kitchen have been, you know, uh, chopping vegetables and cut their finger. And we've had to take them to the emergency. I said, it shouldn't happen. You know, it's a terrible crisis to have that happen. We don't want that to happen. I've actually gone down and give knife-cutting, knife-vegetable-cutting instructions to help people not many years ago when I used to go down. Because it shouldn't happen that way. But, but I remember one man who cut his finger. And he came back some months later and talked about how profound that experience was important. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important, why, why it works so well in this environment, is that people are practicing. People are being so honest about themselves, looking at it, trying to work with their experience in a deep way, in a way that perhaps is very different than how we would in normal, up normal life. And when we're really honest, really look deeply, try to understand what's going on for us, and really look at the, our reactions, our responses, and all that, our values in this situation, we see something very profound that can at times be liberating, very moving, profound. So, you know, I certainly um, don't wish difficult times on anyone. And uh, I wish that our wider society didn't provide so many, so many very, very di- difficult challenges for so many people as exists right now. But I think as a Buddhist teacher, uh, I would do a disservice to practitioners of this path, if I didn't point also to uh, these very same difficulties, um, provide unparalleled opportunity to be able to look, turn the mirror around, and really look deeply, really deeply at what are the things that we are, what are our deepest values, what are the most important desires that run our lives, what are the important places of clinging, beliefs um, uh, that we have. And one of them that is very, very deep is our clinging to self, clinging to self-identity, self-image, self-concept. And it's very hard to see, and sometimes it's not, some of it's easy to see, but uh, some of it's very hard to see. And it's sometimes, it's, it's, it's most clearly seen in times of crisis or difficulty. Or it's most clearly seen when the mind gets really, really still and calm. When the mindfulness gets very strong, and mind is strong, mindful, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of concentration, a lot of stillness. Because when the mind gets really, really quiet and still, then we can start seeing the little, very important, but very little movements of the mind, of clinging, of believing, of wanting and not wanting, of being afraid. We can see the genesis of it, how it arises. 
And here at the retreat, we have this beautiful combination of hopefully starting to get a little bit calmer than we usually do, usually, usually are in daily life. So we, the calmness helps us to see more deeply and difficulty. Whether you came with difficulty, some of you, I'm sure you did, and some of you maybe didn't come with difficulty, but then you got it here. <laughs> and so the combination and, uh, the, uh, is, you know, creates a very nice recipe. So I hope that uh, you can use this opportunity here to understand yourself better, to look more deeply, turn the mirror and really see deeply here. And, uh, and also take the, ch- take the risk while you're here of um, getting calm. Take the risk to get as calm and as still as you can be. Or take the risk to really be here instead of letting the mind be in other times and other places. Really be here, because the calm is found in being really here. And to really go deep into this mirror of the mind, to really see deeply into all this, take the opportunity of crisis to really look deep. Um, You really want to be here, really here as much as you can. And I hope that um, what you discover will be useful for you, not only now, but for the rest of your life. So, um, those are my words. <laughs> so, thank you very much. And I'm not sure what happens next, except I'm, I just stay here and talk. So, those of you who'd like to leave and do walking meditation are welcome to go out now. Those of you who'd like to stay and have a discussion with me or some. Or with me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.